Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dirty Money, bringing you the lowdown on the sinister side of finance. And I'm Ben Hedges. As always, we have Mike in the studio today. How are you doing, Mike? Great, Ben. How about yourself? I'm good. And we got an action-packed show for you guys because we have the debt ceiling crisis, which is currently unfolding um, as we speak. There may even be more updates on it but, uh, in, during the time you're watching this. Um, so we'll bring you that first up. But we're also in this episode, we have the UK now wants to uh, regulate cryptocurrency as if it was gambling. We'll tell you all about that in just a moment. Elon Musk says he's finally going to do advertising for Tesla. If you don't know, Tesla hasn't advertised uh, for many years. And then we also have the Japanese stock market, which is uh, just about recovered, recovering back to all-time highs from its uh, its low in, uh, well, from its previous all-time high uh, in 1989 or something. It's taken them 40 years to recover, but they're, they're finally doing well, doing better than the U.S. stock market this year. Um, but anyway, let's... Um, Let's first get into talking uh, about the debt ceiling. The U.S. has until June 1st to negotiate, which is just over a week for the politicians in D.C. to negotiate on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, otherwise, the U.S. will probably default on its debt, at least some uh, debt. It, it will default on it. It will not pay its debt. Now, that's obviously huge because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. That would probably be a bit of a problem, wouldn't it, right? <laughs> yeah, it would be a huge problem. But more importantly is, uh, really, are we going to default? Likely not likely. And they could put a Band-Aid on it and say, here's enough money to run for the next two months uh, instead of discussing a real budget. So they call that a continuing resolution. And I mean, yeah, the U.S., to put it in context, the U.S. has never really broadly defaulted on its debt. I mean, they say we've never they have actually defaulted on some very specific types of bonds. Uh, in the past, but there's never been like a massive broad default on all of the, you know, treasuries, six month treasuries, two year, tre you know, et cetera, uh, two year notes or whatever. But yeah, that in theory, it would start to not pay um, its debts by June 1st, the government would start to run out of money. Uh, and obviously, as the world's reserve currency, uh, that would kill confidence in the US dollar, and could even start the process of other currencies replacing the US dollar, uh, maybe a basket of currencies replacing the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Now, Biden, he's currently in Japan. He's cutting it short to come back to negotiate. But the Republicans, they've been negotiating, and today they actually walked out of the negotiations. Well, they said they were talking to themselves. The real question is, is like, who's negotiating the debt ceiling? But not only with the debt ceiling, there's the principles of like, this is just the overall budget for the United States that gets tied into the debt ceiling. So there's so much more involved than just paying off our bonds or paying off the interest that we owe on lended money and things like that. It's, it's a lot of different things. And right now, the negotiation is between like five people. How are these people qualified to negotiate the largest budget on the planet? annual budget on the planet. Well, like, you looked into this, right? You looked into the people doing it. Yeah, it's crazy because the, these these guys, like there's Shalanda Young, Steve Rochetti, Luisa Terrell, Garrett Graves, and Kevin McCarthy, who has a staff, right? None of them have a degree in finance. None of them have a degree that that would lead them towards understanding how accounting works for a business or budgeting for any type of strategy or anything. So it's kind of crazy. And the only person I saw out of the five of them that had 
any type of sensibility is Shalanda Young, right? So at least she's been on the House uh, Oversight Committee for the last 17 years. So she understands the typical, you know, committee of appropriations is what it is. And, and she's understands how to appropriate things on a committee level. So she has some insight for at least 17 years of doing it. Although her so, degree is in psychology, not finance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you have, but she seems to be the most qualified out of everybody. But again, she's a lifelong politician. Yep. Right. So, so how much understanding does she see budgets spending? You know, I think these guys thinks and think in terms of billions and, you know, a real business thinks of dollars. Right. Here's so, our second guy who is Steve Ricchetti. Who's this guy? <laughs> this guy's a disaster. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. The guy ran a lobbying firm from 2001 to 2012. That was his main business that he's had. Uh, he's he was part of the Clinton administration from 96 to 98. Uh, and then he came over and started to work for Biden as vice president. When he was VP under Obama, he came part of Biden's uh, administrative group. And he's really done nothing besides lobby for for special interest in Washington. That's that's really all he's done. He has a law degree. Right. So he has a degree in law. So he knows where he should step when he's lobbying and where not to step while he's lobbying. You spend 10 years making millions of dollars lobbying in Washington, and then you sit on the cabinets of Bill Clinton and you sit on the cabinet of Joe Biden under Obama. And now you're under Joe Biden directly. Like, why? They, they, lobbyists should not be allowed to be part of the cabinet. They're trying to make money and bring policy for companies. And it goes back to the corporatocracy is that we don't really have a democracy. We don't really have a republic. We have corporations that pay for lobbyists to create laws that benefit them. Garrett Graves doesn't even have a degree. Uh, another lifelong politician from Louisiana. Interesting, Shalanda and Garrett both come from similar places in Louisiana. Now, this um, guy, is he on the Republican side? He's on the Republican side, okay. but he's all he's done his whole professional career is be part of the GOP as an aide to former congressman and then became a congressman. So what 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 does he have authority to actually negotiate the debt ceiling or our budget for the United States? Like, how does that make any sense at all? None of those people should be there except for Shalanda. And, and uh, there's another woman named Louisa Terrell. Louisa Terrell is an interesting person. She actually was the executive director of the Biden Foundation up until 2019. Can't really find much about her net worth or anything like that, but, but she is part of the uh, Biden Foundation prior to Biden being put into office. Pretty interesting to me, considering the allegations that are going against Joe Biden and his family from the House of Representatives with the $10 million money payoff from China, Ukraine, and other areas. So it's interesting to see like how much of that money went through the Biden Foundation, I wonder. Maybe none of it, maybe all of it. Let's talk about what 
the sticking points in the argument actually are as well, because, you know, the Republicans, they want to do some things, bringing down spending, etc. This is what they want. Although I think a lot of the, the, the things that Republicans are doing is, is kind of too little too late, because really, it's like, when you get into debt on a credit card, and there comes a point where it just sort of snowballs, and uh, it's out of control, which is basically where we are, I think, as a country. Uh, especially with the rising interest rates. We'll talk about that in just a moment, how much the interest is going to rise. A lot of bonds are, are coming due in the next few years. And the average rate right now is something like 1.8%. And as, as they refinance those bonds, they're going to be kicking in on the new rate. And so you're going, you know, six month treasury is now like 5%. The 10 year is like, you know, two or 3%. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, the, the new rates are going to be kicking in anyway. So we're going to, instead of being at an average rate of like 1.8%, we're going to be at an average rate of something like 3% or more on US government debt. So interest is going to absolutely shoot through the roof. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first of all, we just go through what the Republicans are trying to do so that the Democrats basically and Joe Biden, they want to raise the debt ceiling without any conditions. They just want to raise it, have a, a simple bill and raise it. The Republicans want to tie it to decreased spending so that, you know, in theory, you can get the spending under control. They want work requirements for certain government programs. For example, they want able-bodied people to be have to work 20 hours a week if they're going to be eligible for food stamps and Medicaid. They want to reform permitting for oil and gas, and they want to rescind unspent COVID funds. So there's a lot of COVID money still out there that hasn't been spent uh, that we could actually take back and <laughs> perhaps used to pay off some of the debt. What do you think about those, Mike? I mean, who who determines who's able-bodied and who's not? That's my first question. There's people with psychological problems. There's all kinds of different things. So like, I would I would say that whole system needs a reforming before you want to put it into a bill. That that just seems like a a a, a token to to try to stop the problem. Like. It's not really tackling the root of the problem, is it? Oh, we're going to throw this in there. They're never it's just going to create more problems. Yeah. Right. It, it's, yeah. It's really a waste of time almost. So like, why did you even put that in there? It doesn't make any sense. And then rescinding the COVID funds. Yeah. Should have did that when they started giving away COVID funds. Yeah. That well, was. I think that, you know, with the COVID bills, the first bill was the unanimous, you know, pretty bipartisan bill. Uh, but the ones after that were not. So I think a lot of the Republicans feel probably that the later bills, the later COVID bills were not necessary. They should be rescinded. Talking about how much the interest rate or the interest will increase. I want to read you guys this. In February, the Congressional Budget Office projected that the annual net interest costs uh, would total $640 billion in 2023. So that's doubling. Um, and then it would soar to $739 billion in 2024. And then up to $1.4 trillion in 2033. That's a huge amount. The US would basically be paying $1.4 trillion out of its you know, budget just on interest payments. That's basically burning money. Money's not even going to, it's just going to the pockets of people who own the debt. I mean, to some degree, that would be paying people, US citizens who own the debt, which would be nice, but it's not doing anything useful like buying planes for the military or uh, addressing education or the fentanyl crisis or whatever that's going to be helpful to the country. This is the interest payments as the net of government revenue. So all of the money that the government brings in in taxes, this is how much we're going to be paying in interest versus the revenue. So it's about 40%. So... Uh, of all the revenue that government brings in in taxes, 
the US would be paying out 40% of it as interest. That's pretty ridiculous. That's like you, you get your monthly paycheck of $5,000 and you immediately have to pay 2000 just to give it away, right? Pay, pay your loan sharks or whatever. <laughs> That's the equivalent. Maybe they should ask for debt forgiveness. They should. They need a balanced transfer credit card or something, you know, 0% <laughs> APR for like two decades. <laughs> More like 100 years at this point. Yeah, 100 years. Yeah, 100 years. Uh, 100, 100 year lease like Hong Kong, right? Let's see if right. we can get away with it somehow. No, I mean, I don't, I don't see an end to this uh, problem anytime soon. The money is just being, you know, burned at an astronomical rate. They talk about making a trillion dollar coin or $30 trillion bill or something ridiculous. Like that'll just burn more money in the long run. Inflation's going to be worse and worse and worse. Go buy gold and silver because eventually you go to the grocery store with a gram of silver and buy a bunch of apples. If they don't find a way to start whittling away this crazy debt, it's, it's your children and their children that are going to suffer for it. That's right. I mean, I think their current plan has been to inflate out of it. Uh, that's why we've had this inflation, um, which obviously does sort of decrease the debt in real terms. The Fed's trying to get inflation back down to 2% and interest rates look like they're going to stay uh, elevated for, for quite a while. I mean, what we're at right now, like 5% on the six month uh, treasury, that's more like a normal interest rate that you would have had throughout you know, the later decades of the 20th century. It's only really since 2008, since the financial crisis that we've had interest rates close to zero. So it's not really a normal situation we've been in. Uh, government's been getting free money for like 15 years. And now the uh, <laughs> yeah. situation is changing. If Jamie Dimon can figure out the problems with all the banks that failed around him, along with Credit Suisse and UBS figuring out their problems, someone's going to figure it out. Or, you know, we'll have to switch our currency away from the reserve. 40% of our of our annual revenue is just crazy. it's absolutely crazy speaking of the country where biden is is in for the g7 japan we've got some more news about japan and that is about the japanese stock market which is actually doing well for the first time in a long time i mean the japanese nikkei index is um, annihilating any market in the world right now when you're talking about growth for the year they're at 17 percent growth for their stocks for people who don't know what the nikkei is the nikkei is an index similar to the dow jones here in the united states it groups together several different companies that average a total value and gives a reflection for what the tokyo stock exchange will be doing just like the dow does for the new york stock exchange and so what is what it allows us to do is to just take a good glimpse at the performance of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And prior to really the last couple of years, the Tokyo Stock Exchange has been in a bear market for almost 30 years. Some of the companies that are in the Nikkei that we interact with every day are like Sony, Toyota, Honda, Hitachi, Mitsubishi, uh, Nintendo. Interestingly enough, Nintendo's worth more than the number one car company in the world, Toyota. Thought that was pretty crazy. It's interesting to think about that the, the Nikkei has a 17% in the last five months. I mean, you could have bought any, you could have bought the Nikkei and just said, here you go. This is what I'm doing. I got 17% growth. The, for example, the Dow pretty much is stale for the entire yeah. year. We've been basically flatlining, haven't we? Yeah. 
I mean, we went up a little bit. We went down a little bit. If you're a day trader or you're, you're trying to pay attention to that headache, then you're going to make a little money here and there. But if you're, you know, there's a couple of stocks like the tech stocks that bottomed out at the end of 22. If you bought in before March, you really saw heavy growth, you know, like uh, the Facebook meta is up 27% year to date. That's those yep. are pretty heavy numbers. Uh, I haven't looked at NVIDIA, but I'm sure NVIDIA is up there too. But the Nikkei in 1989 was at 38,000. Right. And that was their peak. And then they crashed, didn't they? The Nikkei, yeah, it peaked in 1989. It crashed and it was basically their economy was in like recession mode all the way until around 2012. They were just you know, yeah. going down. Yeah, just, just kind of coasting downward. The, the, a lot of people think that the reason the Nikkei is up is because the, the GDP for Japan is up 1.7% in the first quarter. And a lot of people predicted that it was going to be only, you know, 0 0.4%, 0.7%. So, you know, if it's almost doubled what, the, what was happening there. Property prices, interestingly enough, actually kind of give you a predecessor for what's going to happen uh, in, in the market, right? So if you look at it, years and years ago, it's uh, they're at an all-time high. You see those spikes, and then you look kind of bottomed out, flattened. Uh, there's less you know, negative growth, and then a little bit of growth, 2012, and then you can see the last couple of years. I guess we can see, uh, I mean, this this part where we've got negative growth, this is the sort of recession yeah. time frame um, from 1990 until uh, around 2012. You can see 1989, that was when we the market peaked, and then it goes down. Basically, it has a few ups and downs, but it's on a downward trend all the way until around 2012, and then and it starts start, picking up. Yeah, it starts moving back towards positive uh you know, but it's interesting to think about that they haven't seen, they haven't seen true growth in no. the last 30 years on the market. It's like the NASDAQ on steroids. The NASDAQ, it, after the dot-com bubble, it took 15 years for it to cross its previous high. Right. Uh, this is like that, but over like 40 years. Speaking about volatility, that's the key word in our next story, because in the UK, the UK Treasury Select Committee has come out with a report that has concluded that the UK should regulate crypto the same as gambling. And this is quite interesting. So they say currencies such as Bitcoin have no intrinsic value and serve no useful social purpose. Uh, I think a lot of people might disagree with that. Uh, definitely for the no useful social purpose part. I, I kind of agree with the no intrinsic value because it only has value if someone attaches value to it. But at least you can say with Ethereum, there are smart contracts. It can serve some purpose. Basically, what they say, how they conclude this report is we strongly recommend the government regulates retail trading and investment activity in unbacked crypto assets as gambling rather than financial advice, consistent with its stated principle of same risk, same regulatory outcome. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is the full report. There's a graph on there where they, they show you just how volatile to the uneducated person looking at that, that looks pretty scary graph. Kind of like the Nikkei, to be honest. <laughs> That's the <laughs> 1990. <laughs> but, That's what I was thinking. I was like, well, don't people short stocks? And then like, what, isn't that really what the markets are? Gambling with a little bit of education behind them? It's educated gambling, I would say. Trading 
is always more similar to gambling, although you can pr protect yourself from certain risk with things like stop loss orders and things. There are some more techniques to it, but essentially it's, it's, it's sort of like gambling. So yeah, maybe, maybe stock trading should be regulated as gambling too. But I think it's kind of funny because, you know, in the UK, casinos are everywhere. Like they have casinos at highway rest stops and stuff in the UK. And like, so I thought, oh, well, is it going to be, is it really going to be any different? You know, it's not like New York where, you know, or most states in the US where casinos are banned and except for certain areas or whatever. So anyway, I, I had a look to see what, you know, what regulations would be placed on this thing if the government decides to take the recommendations. And basically one thing would there, there would be licenses. So you'd have to have a license to be an exchange for crypto. Another thing is that there's this whole thing about advertising. So you wouldn't be able to advertise crypto trading in the same way. You'd have to, you know, go with all these regulations for gambling advertising. So in the UK, you cannot portray or condone or encourage gambling behavior that's socially irresponsible, etc. You cannot link gambling to seduction or sexual success. Basically, you can't show someone gambling and then, you know, all the women uh, want to uh, go out with him or something because he's won. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of regulations around it. You can't show anyone who appears to be under 25 doing it even though the legal age for it is 18. But the funny thing was that, that the report actually points out that the UK government, in partnership with the Royal Mint, was trying to develop an NFT, an NFT for a digital Britain. It's, it's probably like a program, really, to encourage investment and stuff. I doubt the NFT really is supposed to do anything, but the UK government drops the plan for the NFT. I guess with the crypto winter, the crypto bear market, they were like, oh, <laughs> screw it. This isn't a good look. But the report criticizes them even more for it. So, you know, uh, basically saying government assets shouldn't be used to develop cryptocurrencies, leave it to the private sector. Although the funny thing is the government actually has owned several gambling companies in the past. It's kind of amusing to me. So at rest stops in, in Britain, do they have like blackjack tables, people dealing? Uh, it's normally machines. Yeah, it's like a, okay. it's like a machine, uh, a, a casino with just slot machines. There'll be some, there'll be an attendant on there just making sure people under 18 don't go in there. But yeah, I saw that last time at Christmas when I went there. It's more like if you've been to the Las Vegas airport, they'll have like a load Nevada. of slot machines just there where you're waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nevada works the same way. If you're on Heavenly Ski Resort, you go down on the California side, there's no slot machines. You go down on the Nevada side, there's slot machines inside the ski lodge. Right. So, yeah. Uh, Nevada is basically like that, the whole state. I never, I never got slot machines, man. I don't find that fun at all. I, I went to this casino. A new casino opened in Hudson Valley. It's all slots, electronic table games, and uh, I find it really boring. I feel like if you're going to go, you need, you know, you need the fun of a, a real live dealer and a load of people playing with you. You know what I mean? There's no dealers at the new casino. Uh, the one, no, not Resorts World Hudson Valley. There's no live dealers. It's all just slots and um, video poker and video blackjack and stuff. Every time I play those, I'm like, these are rigged. I don't care what anyone says. I, I think they're rigged, yeah. And, and Well, I mean, supposedly they're not. They pay out like 91% or whatever, depending on the state. But the only, yeah, the only thing I do well at will be like blackjack or um, <laughs> I want to read that. <laughs> like live blackjack or craps, you know, where I don't even, sometimes I leave it losing money, but I felt like I've won just because I had such a good time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, right. 
Yeah, as long as you're there for an enjoyment rather than an addiction. You know, I was thinking about like if the stock market or crypto is considered a gambling in the United States, if you have a crypto gambling problem, please call the 1-800 number. Crypto.com supports gambling health. You know, like what? You'd probably have to do that, wouldn't you? They, the, the crypto exchanges would have to pay into a fund to do like a helpline and stuff. Yeah, just like the sports bet gambling in the United States and the casinos, they do the same thing. It, it is definitely addictive. I mean, gambling is like, it's super easy to see how addictive it is. It, you can feel it kind of rewiting your brain a little bit. Like there's a certain energy about it. You know what I mean? That's like, yeah, I want to do more. Come on, come on. Uh, at least for me, for me, I have a super addictive personality, but I sort of feel it with crypto too. You know, I had one time where I, I, I invested in a 5X uh, leveraged Shiba Inu coin. I put 50 bucks in it and I made $1,000 in one day <laughs> from it. <laughs> 5x leveraged that was on that hot bit exchange that you introduced me to oh yeah like, yeah yeah i i was like oh they have some kind of exotic tokens on here what's this 5x shiba inu and i yeah i made a thousand bucks in a day from that yeah that's always fun but there's there's the example why they say it's gambling right you're like uh, those sort of tokens yeah but i mean if you if you just put it into bitcoin it's nowhere near as volatile now. It used to be more volatile, I think, than it is. Right now, it's sort of hovering around the upper 20,000s. Bitcoin, to say that the growth that Bitcoin experienced over the last decade, I would be rivaled to say something created that amount of volume with that amount of increase and decrease. I don't, I don't know of anything that's comparable with that kind right. of volume. I mean, wasn't it valued almost over a trillion dollars? It was, yeah. It was at a trillion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So name something that went to a trillion dollars from nothing in the last 20 years. And, and still then, isn't worth anything. And still isn't. And then went back down to like 250 billion. So like, that's, that's crazy. So that's definitely. And it's still, it's still difficult to find a use for these things. Like for example, with Ethereum, when they brought in smart contracts, people started trading pictures of gorillas for like, $200,000, but you still can't buy a house with it. You know, like th there are some companies doing it, trying to sell houses. I guess they've sold a few, but it's not really catching on as a, you know, legit well, way of like, you know, how do you, how do you back the house? Well, supposedly you put the house into an LLC and then you link the ownership of the LLC to a smart contract on the blockchain and you, you sell the LLC, which owns the house. Yeah, I feel like you can lose your house. I so, I wouldn't touch it. No, I I go with an escrow company and my my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, next in line is Elon. Kevin Parfarath, a fellow YouTuber and former California governor candidate, he actually asked the question at the investor meeting in Texas. I'm curious. I really think that some of the features that you highlighted here, like the uh, over-the-air airbag deployments of improving yeah. the features, the safety features, are great things that we could be advertising. For I know you've heard this many times before. <laughs> Why not advertise these things that you told us here? I feel like nobody else knows about this. I hear you. I, I mean, I think it's indeed ironic that you know <laughs> Twitter is like highly dependent on advertising. So you know, here I am. It's like you know, not, never used advertising really before, and uh, now have a company that's highly dependent on advertising. So I, I guess I should say advertising is awesome and everyone should do it. <laughs> you know what? I, I believe in taking, taking suggestions. So um, 
we'll, we'll try a little advertising and see how it goes. It's cool. It seems like he actually just decided on stage that he would. He did actually. So he, he did a CNBC interview after that. And he literally said like, hey, I chose to do it while I was standing on stage. And in my mind, I'm like, why doesn't this guy advertise? I, I, you know, I think everybody who's, who's a business person has thought about it for years and years and years. Why don't I see Tesla commercials? Why don't I see dealerships opening left and right for Tesla? They don't franchise their dealerships. They don't follow the traditional marketing strategy of the car companies. And if they did, they would be the dominant force in the car market. I think globally, if they followed that strategy, because, you know, you've got Teslas now that are under $50,000 entry and 10 years ago, or what was it? Six, seven years ago, the Tesla was 90 grand and yeah. the people weren't going to get a model S because they, you know, wanted to save the environment. They were going to get a model S because it was really fast zero to 60. Oh yeah. <laughs> Dude, those things. Uh, I I rode in one with a with a, a friend, one of the subscribers of the show at a meetup. It's like I got to take you for a ride in my Tesla, and he put on this like plaid mode or something. Was it cheetah mode? I don't know. The car like the front lowers down, so it's like more aerodynamic or something. And it was like you know, it's like when you see those photos of or like astronauts or something, they're going around and like or fighter jets, and it's like your skin like you could feel it getting pushed back. Ah! But yeah, that's why people are buying them. Well, that's why they were initially buying them. Who knows? I mean, I think now with the cost of gas fluctuating and, and going up and down, I mean, I'm looking at it going, well, if I spend $100 a week in gas, that's 400 a month in time. I'm spending $5,000 a year on gas or I could spend, you know, 20 bucks a month, 20 bucks a week charging my car yeah. with my current, you know, kilowatt pricing that i have for electricity yeah and i think with the with the lower priced ones i mean what's the entry price is something like 35 grand now isn't it for the very lowest model although you probably don't want to buy that one but so in reality the average price is probably over 40 or something but i think they they've kind of shifted from originally they were following you know the lamborghini model like Lamborghini says that they don't do TV ads because their clientele is not sitting around watching TV, right? Which is, <laughs> I always thought that was very funny because literally they're trying to market to CEOs and people who have money, right? Those people don't just I mean, blaze. Entry level Lamborghinis are $250,000. Well, that's the price of a home. And so Tesla sort of went from, they had the Roadster at the beginning, right? And the Model S and stuff. And they've gone from super high end well, not as high end as Lamborghini, but pretty high end, hundred thousand dollar cars, and they've gone the other way. They've gone down, so to mass production. So I think probably they made it. It's it's actually an interesting strategy, right? They make it really desirable with a high end car, and then they make lower priced versions. But the people who are buying the lower priced versions still feel that they're getting something, you know, high end because it's a Tesla. You know? Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, I've driven in the Model S's. I've driven in the the lower it's end the one. Cheap one. Yeah, the Model Three, right? Is the cheap Model one. Three? That's what it is. That's the, the cheap 3. one, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I've driven in those too. They're nice. They they feel similar to the Model S. They're desirable. I've thought about getting them, except for the fact that I drive too much, so I don't want to wait to charge my car for twenty minutes at some random spot in the middle of nowhere in Florida or wherever I'm driving. Right. Coast. That's the thing is they've got the supercharged stations in California pretty much everywhere. You're driving down the road. You pull over for 20 minutes. There's always there always seems to be minutes. A yeah, 80 percent charged in like 20 minutes. 
But that's and fine, then, dude. I fill yeah. up gas in one minute. <laughs> that's that's my point. All right. And then the only advantage I think is whenever I was with somebody and we were doing a supercharge in California, there was a Starbucks with an eye shot. So you'd plug in your car, right, yeah. you walk to Starbucks, and then you walk back and it's pretty much done. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I think actually at one time, Elon Musk had, had filed uh, patents, or not patents, but trademarks for Tesla restaurants. And I think the idea was he was going to put these restaurants at these uh, supercharging stations, um, you know, to have a compliment. That would be brilliant if he did it. You know, he could just partner with Starbucks and say, we'll do a little coffee stand eatery right inside the Tesla charging stations. Right, yeah. There's a new revenue stream for him. Another interesting thing I thought when he was saying that on stage, he was like, you know, Twitter relies on advertising. I wonder whether Tesla will start advertising on Twitter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> give himself a discount yeah right lo and behold he decides to start advertising when one of his companies is dependent upon advertising <laughs> that probably helped it a little bit right it maybe yeah. it wasn't just kevin's question but it was sort of like well you know i now own a company that needs ads so yeah, yeah. although if he only I, I doubt he'll only advertise on twitter because like the way advertising works you need different touch points don't you You need to see the ad in a few different places yeah. and stuff so but probably twitter will be one of it I'd love to see the Super Bowl commercial with Tesla this year. That'd that be good. Would... And also, yeah, in the interview afterwards with, I think it was CNBC, he, he did talk about he thinks advertising should be like content. It should be enjoyable right. uh, to watch so that you don't regret watching it. You feel like you're watching a piece of content. So maybe we will see a Super Bowl commercial, a Tesla one. So I wanted to bring up one last thing. This last week, in the last couple of days, the most expensive Bible was at auction. Wow. The Hebrew, it's called the Codex Sassoon. It, it auctioned at Sotheby's for $38 million. Wow. Yeah, it's 1,100 years old, and it's it's called the Codex Sassoon. Interestingly enough, I didn't really, I was like, well, what is the Codex Sassoon? And then I was like, all right, let's start looking up Bibles. So Codex basically means the first 24 books of the of the Bible or the complete set of the 24 Hebrew Bible, right? Or or a Bible. So is so this the, the Old Testament or is it? Yeah, this is the Old Testament of old. Christianity, right? So in America, we, we think of Christianity, but this is a Hebrew Bible because the Old Testament is a Hebrew Bible. I do know that it sold for 38 million and this is one of the 10 oldest Bibles in existence. Wow. Um, and they thought it might even go up to 50 million, but it's, it was originally purchased in 1929. Uh, and the name Sassoon comes from the, the man that originally bought it in 29, which is David Solomon Sassoon. And so he's an Iraqi Jewish businessman and he collected like, uh, old, uh, uh, Arabic and Hebrew artifacts and writings and things like that. And so it, it traveled through a few different hands, but it was purchased and now it's donated to Israel, which is kind of cool. They get to donated. keep it. Yeah, donated to, uh, to whoever purchased it. I think it was a group uh, that purchased it and donated it and put it, they said they were putting it back in its rightful place in Israel with a museum. Oh, I see. So it was for sale in another country. And they bought it and they took it home kind of thing. 
Yeah, basically. It, like well, people want to do with the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum, take it back to Egypt, the Parthenon marbles that are <laughs> in, yeah. in Greece, uh, all the things that Westerners pillaged, right, from uh, from other countries. Right. Yeah. No. So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing that it sold for that much. Um, but I was also looking up. They got me thinking, like, what's the oldest Bible in the world? And then the Bible's called the the Codex Vaticanus, which is in the Vatican Library. And it's been there since like the 15th century. Is that like and one of the secret ones that has extra books and stuff? Yeah, well, that's what I, I couldn't no find. No allowed to read. Secret Bibles, except for like hearsay that I've heard from different people. But uh, you can actually view this Bible online virtually. Oh, okay but you can't actually see it in person because the Vatican library only allows for specific people to go in there and look at it because they have so many precious books. Who knows the real reason I've never been to the Vatican. I don't think they would let me in the library. It'd be cool if they did though. Um, This one's in Greek, huh? Yeah. Ancient Greek. So, so it's, it's pretty interesting. This one is from 300 AD and yeah so that that kind of is right around the same time the roman empire started to adopt christianity as its official religion rather than trying to fight it right so for the previous 300 years they fought it they're the ones that persecuted jesus right so it's like they they fought against this and then around the same time this bible is created is the same time that the roman empire is like well you can't beat them join them for thirty-eight million dollars for a book, that's that's a lot of money. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's a sharp contrast. We we're talking about NFTs and you know a gorilla for two hundred thousand dollars versus like a real centuries-old book goes for thirty-eight million. I mean, that's real value right there. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, is this the first edition? <laughs> first edition. <laughs> yeah, it's a limited edition, certainly. Yeah. I mean, th- One that's. I look for it is, a little bit. It is non-fungible. <laughs> it literally <laughs> is non-fungible. <laughs> right. It's impossible to create another one. You'd have to go back in time. Thank you so much, guys, for watching uh, or listening. If you're listening to us on any of the major podcast platforms, do leave us a five-star review. Well, if you think it's worth a five-star review, share the show with your friends so that more people can see it. Also, if you are on any of the micro-content platforms like YouTube Shorts, tiktok or instagram reels our name of the show on there of the account on there is at dirty money show so do follow us on all of those platforms we put out micro content almost every day actually i think it is every day isn't it yep micro content every day and longer episodes several times a week so thanks a lot for joining us mike thanks for putting it together and we'll see you guys next week on dirty money